Hey, girl. Picture this. You, your comfiest PJs, and a phone call with your absolute BFF. Well, guess what? The Mom Betch Podcast is your new virtual girlfriend on speed dial, serving up all the real talk, laughter, and support you need. Go to www.mombetch.com and stream where you listen to your podcasts. Mom Betch Podcast is ready for you. You want to be fully, fully present with them and you want them to feel that you are there just for them in that moment, that this is something that you view as very special and, you know, it's their time to really just have unfettered access to you. Welcome to the Beautifully Complex podcast, where I share insights and strategies on parenting neurodivergent kids straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Beautifully Complex podcast. I am so excited to have all of you here. And I'm joined by Sarah Wayland, who is my co-founder in the Behavior Revolution. And we are bringing this month's behavior episode to you in this show. Hello. And so, <laughs> yeah, Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself really briefly to anybody who hasn't listened to any of our episodes together yet? I'm Sarah Wayland. I'm co-founder of the Behavior Revolution with Penny. <laughs> and the business that I was running before we started revolutionizing behavior <laughs> uh, called Guiding Exceptional Parents. I do parent coaching something I call special needs care navigation. And then I'm a certified RDI or relationship development intervention consultant. RDI is a parent-mediated intervention for families who are supporting somebody who is autistic. And I also have two of my own kids who are both young adults and both have their own alphabet soup of many things going on with them. Yep, yep. We actually have boys who are similar age with similar alphabet soups. (laughs) (laughs) So we get each other. Let's start by talking about what relationships look like when they're not great. Because in this episode, we're going to talk about relationship reset. So how to take a relationship that isn't great and start turning it around. Because we both believe very strongly that that parent-child relationship is guiding everything else. It affects all of your parenting. And so it's really, really important and valuable that that relationship is trusting and open and strong. And so we see many families who are not in that place. Their relationships are very broken and very much a struggle just to have a conversation with each other sometimes. So I wanted to talk about kind of this idea of reset and repair that relationship. So Sarah, you want to start out with talking, maybe give a couple of examples of what does a really broken parent-child relationship might look like? Well, a bunch of things pop to mind. One is the kid who won't look at you, won't talk to you and ignores you whenever you're around and yells at you to go away or will not engage with you if you're trying to talk to them. So that's one way of being. 
Another one is where family members are walking on eggshells Mm -hmm. when they're around the kid because they're just terrified of triggering some outburst or doing something wrong because they don't understand what is upsetting to the kid. That walking on eggshells thing might look regulated to an outside person because the blowups aren't happening because the parents or siblings are just basically accommodating completely what the other person needs without getting their own needs met. So that's something that can happen. Mm -hmm. Um, You can see explosive behavior in response to a demand or a perceived demand, or even (laughs) just looking at them wrong. You can (laughs) just see this sort of easily triggered dysregulation. I think those are kind of the big ones. There's also running away. So there's kids who, when things start getting a little weird, they just bolt for the hills. Mm -hmm. So they have a very low frustration tolerance. I would also say kids who don't openly talk to you about things, if they never want to talk about what's bothering them or they never come to you for help with anything, that to me is also a signal that the relationship isn't what it needs to be. That one's tricky for me because my older son in particular is A, extremely introverted, and B, has an expressive language delay. And so for him, sharing with me is a lot of work. And he does hesitate to share with me just because he doesn't always have the words to describe what is going on for him. And I have to be so careful with him because I can put words in his head that aren't actually what's going on for him. Right. So that, that one's so tricky because you're right. I mean, there are kids who are just like, don't want to talk to you. I don't want to engage with you. You know. I don't trust you. Right. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one because, like I said, for him, initially I did see his lack of responding to me as us not being very connected. And right. Then when we got language testing on him and he was below the first percentile in expressive language abilities, I was like, oh, that's why he's not talking to me. He can't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think that trust factor is the piece that's on my mind with that. Yeah, Is like, you know, stuff's going on for me, but I don't trust my parents to talk about them. Right. I might automatically be in trouble or they might not get it or, you know, so many other potential reasons why but they kind of boil down a lot of times to just mistrust. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what do we do now? Uh, <laughs> Our kid is not maybe not talking to us. Maybe we're walking on eggshells. You know, maybe all of these different things are, are a possibility for you. Or, you know, the relationship just isn't what you wish it was because you can improve that as well. What's the first step? What do we do first to really sort of start to repair that relationship. So, you know, before we started this podcast, we were talking about this. And I mean, there there are a bunch of things I do, but the focus for me is on making your interactions with your child more positive. Mm. And there are a bunch of ways to do that. So in RDI, one of the things we start out with is just having your kid be comfortable with you being around them and not making any demands. So one of the things I did with my younger son when we first started doing it was they had me sit on the couch with him for a minute and not do anything. Mm. And 
uncomfortable. It was really, really hard for me to do this. Mm -hmm. And my husband could sit with my son for five minutes without saying anything, and they were fine. It was me. It was clearly me that was the problem. And I think there were two pieces to it. One is that I was constantly trying to fix everything. And I was managing my own anxiety and grief, frankly, Mm -hmm. by just doing something all the time. I couldn't slow down and just be. And the other piece of it was that he got used to me constantly making demands on him. So anytime he saw me, I was going to be asking him to do something. Right. It wasn't just being with him and being comfortable just hanging out. Yeah. And you're reminding me of a prior podcast episode with Amanda Deepman on low demand parenting. And this is exactly some of those reasons why she teaches low demand parenting is because when our kids see us as always making demands, if they're avoidant, which a lot of our kids are, they're going to start avoiding that, right? They're going to do anything to not come face to face with yet another demand. Exactly. And, you know, the other thing that I learned during that phase was to shift my language from being full of demands and commands to using what you and I call declarative language. You know, this strategy we learned from Linda Murphy in the Declarative Language Handbook, where you shift to doing things like spotlighting the problem, but not the solution, or making an observation about how you are feeling about something. You know, oh, I'm worrying about getting things ready for work tomorrow or something like that. You're not saying pack your backpack or whatever. You're just making an observation. So, you know, shifting to declarative language from imperative language made a big difference, certainly for me and and my younger son in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking as you're talking about how hard it is to sit next to a kid that you know is struggling and not say a word. (laughs) Because (laughs) I, like you, am a fixer. (laughs) And it's our nature. And it is very, very hard to know that you're right there with your kid who is struggling, but you cannot do anything. And I think part of the way through that, at least for me, has been to remind myself that it's not about what I need, it's about what he needs. And in that moment, me trying to fix something is not helpful, it's harmful. And I have to remember, okay, what do I need to do that would actually be helpful. And that is me sitting here totally silent, churning inside, (laughs) but totally silent. For me, I actually, my younger son knows when I'm churning inside. And so I can't even do that. Like, so I have to like really get a hold on myself and just be fully present with him Mm. without judgment, without my own anxiety, you know, clouding that interaction which is really hard because (laughs) I have a tendency to be thinking, oh, I have him here and he's captive, so I could talk about all the things we need to talk about. But sometimes he just needs to chill out and and be with me, you know, without my demanding presence. Yeah, it's so important. And it's something that's taken me a really long, hard road to get somewhat good at (laughs) because that inclination for me to fix it and fix it now is so strong. It's so hard to override. But 
my son came to me early teen years, maybe like early high school. And he was finally able to say, you know, I can't talk about this right now. I am not ready. Oh, yeah. And I need you to leave me alone right now about it. Because I was always the now, now, now. Let's get it done, right? (laughs) It's a problem. Let's fix it now. And what he needed was his own time and space. And then he was able to talk about it. And for him, mostly that was overwhelming emotion at first. Mm -hmm. And so having a conversation was not valuable because really his emotional brain or survival brain had taken over, right? right? And so he wasn't really able to have a fruitful conversation. And I had to really recognize that. And that helped me to be able to remind myself that, yes, I am actually helping by not doing anything right now and not putting any pressure on him. And what I found was that he would come and talk to me when before he would always avoid that. (laughs) But when I stopped pressuring him, suddenly in his time, and it could be a couple of days, you know, it could be 20 minutes, it could be, you know, two or three days, but almost every single time he would come and talk to me and ask for my help and my input. So that was a really valuable lesson that I had to really see, you know, come full circle, you know, to be able to say, okay, that really does work. (laughs) And sometimes we just have to trust that it's going to work so that we can get to that validating point where it works. And we're like, okay, this really is what my kid needs. You know, there's another piece to that too, which both of my kids, I mean, I'm actually not a shaming kind of person. Like I do not ever say you should know better or whatever. Mm -hmm. But my kids feel a lot of shame about things that have happened where they were not their best selves. And, you know, one of the things I work on is it's, it's not shame, it's just data. You know, you've heard me say this a bazillion times, but my younger son is always saying something like, I don't want to talk about my former self, right? He's always Mm. saying that. And I always say, but your former self is part of what made you who you are today. And, you know, you've overcome some amazing things. And so your former self didn't know all the things you know now, but he has a very hard time talking about anything where he did not feel like he was his best self. And so that son will come to me. My older son does not come to me at all. You know, he's the one with the language delay. And his language skills, by the way, now are, according to testing, at the 75th percentile. Amazing. But he does still have a hard time expressing himself. And he's also really embarrassed to say things or- around his brother because he thinks his brother is going to make fun of him or something. Mm -hmm. So that happens too, you know. So sometimes I'll just say, hey, come grocery shopping with me or something. So we just have some time together that's not around other people that he might not want to talk to. Yeah. So Yeah. And that leads into time in. But I want to first talk a little bit about repair. This comes up in so many conversations that I have, both on the podcast and in our summits. And it's so important for us to own up to our mistakes, own up to the fact that we got reactive or we got really emotional. And I think here when we're talking about relationships that aren't great, just saying to your kid, I know, I see that this isn't going well. I see that our interactions are not awesome and I want it to be better for both of us. 
and I'm going to try to make some changes. That goes a long way for a kid. And then, of course, you have to follow through and actually make those changes, right? <laughs> that's that's the key piece. But we do, we have to be human with our kids and we have to make amends with them when things aren't going well. That's trust building. You know what that reminds me of is I took a lot of parenting classes when my kids were little. And I remember one time, so my older son is four years older than my other son. And I was taking yet another parenting class. And so I can't remember what the assignment was, but my younger son is like, why are you doing this? Why are you being like this or, or you know, changing the way you are? And my older son said to him, she's taking another one of those parenting classes. And if you just <laughs> go with it, it's actually kind of awesome. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's amazing. Let's talk about time in then. Well, that's a thing I learned in, in my parenting classes. In one classes. of those parenting yes, classes. Exactly. I know. It's a thing I learned from you, but it's super valuable. It can really make so much of a difference in the dynamic between parent and child. Oh my gosh, yes. And like when things are starting to go badly between me and my kids, for whatever reason, maybe one of us is stressed out or whatever, like time in is always the answer. It is always the answer. And what time in is, it's also called special time, but it is one-on-one -on -one time between parent and child where you and your child, without any distractions from other people or other activities or whatever, are just connecting with each other. Hmm. And there's no questions, no commands, no teaching. So you're definitely using your declarative language during time in. And when things are really bad in our house, I really try to spend 20 minutes per child per adult. So that would mean that I would spend 20 minutes with son number one and 20 minutes with son number two. My husband would spend 20 minutes with son number one and 20 minutes with son number two. That is not realistic for most families because, you know, life is super busy, but it is probably the thing you could do that will make the biggest difference in their behavior. And it could be just five minutes, right? Or oh, at yeah. least to start there. Right. It can be much, much less and still have an impact. For sure. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm hesitating a little bit because when things are really bad, like the more time you can give to this, the better. Right. And so, like once things are on a more even keel, then sure, five minutes is probably plenty. But if things need resetting, then doing it a little longer can make a big difference. What I always remember about time in is that it has to be kid-centered. Right. <laughs> and you cannot criticize what they are into. You cannot, <laughs> like, these are all the places my head goes, like, you know, my kids are into gaming, and I'm not a gamer, and I don't necessarily understand the draw. I kind of get the draw for them, but for me, it's not a thing for me for some reason. And I have to still talk with them about it and not be like, well, I don't understand why you spend your time on that, or I don't understand why this is important to you, right? I don't know why they don't like that. I just have to listen. <laughs> I have to listen. And sometimes I participate. They ask less and less of that of me because I'm terrible at it and I hold them back. But when they were younger, they would ask me, you know, to race them in Mario Kart and stuff. And I would, and I wouldn't complain about it. 
or anything like that. I would just spend the time doing what they want to do and they are interested in without any of that subconscious narrative coming out of my mouth. (laughs) I think it's really important to point that out because it's human for us to do that. And we have to work at not doing that, but it's imperative for this concept of time in that you're talking about that we not do that. Yeah. And, you know, it is really hard. Like you just brought up Mario Kart. Like my kids love Mario Kart and they always wanted me to play Mario Kart with them, but it actually literally makes me throw up. Like it makes me nauseous Mm. to watch like the zooming around. Like I just Mm -hmm. cannot do it. And so sometimes your kids will want you to do something that you literally cannot do with them. And you just need to be honest with them about it. So what I would would actually go, like, sit in the room with, like, one eye closed and the other eye partially open because then I could process it a little bit. But, you know, I, I just said, you know, I would love to spend time with you on this, but I just, I can't. I just can't do that. And it is okay to say that. Like, if it's a physical thing, my kids know this about me, right? Yeah. So it's okay. It's VR for me. I can't do VR. Oh, it makes me very nauseous. Me too. Um, but my kid loves it. Mm-hmm. He could spend all day with his face in that thing. And I don't <laughs> understand. We call it VR face because every time he's been in it for a while and he comes out, his face is beat red and he has all the indentations from the <laughs> VR on his face. He loves it. But I cannot put my face in there without throwing up. And so... You know, it's an understood thing in the house that mom cannot share VR with you. I can do other things happily, but not that one. Yeah. And, you know, this is where having more than one adult in your life is a good thing. Because, you know, my husband, for example, loves playing Mario Kart with my son. So I would just say, you know, hey, you and your dad can play Mario Kart later. But let's find something that both of us can do instead. But, you know, sometimes I would do things like watch them playing their video game and just, you know, offer commentary while they're doing it. Like, oh, that was a good jump or whatever. Very positive, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to keep it very positive. You're not teaching, like I said, no questions, no commands, no teaching. And that's really, really hard, mm-hmm. you know, to pull back on your questioning and saying, you know, oh, well, if you just do it this way, then it'll go better. That is not what you do during time in. You can do that other times, but not during time in. Yeah. And no distractions, right? No phone. Right. Nobody interrupting. That piece is hard. Like I Mm -hmm. used to say, well, I could fold laundry while talking to my son. Nope. You want to be fully, fully present with them and you want them to feel that you are there just for them in that moment, that this is something that you view as very special and, you know, it's their time to really just have unfettered access to you. Yeah. It's so funny. I'm just thinking about my daughter. I hate to cook. Dinner time is like the worst for me. And I have said recently, you know, if if some of you would just hang out with me, like just sit in the room when I'm cooking, it'll feel better. And so she does that quite often. She does her own thing and I'm cooking, but just having her presence like makes a difference. It feels Like somebody appreciates what I'm doing and that they don't want me to be alone, right? And Mm -hmm. so it just as you were describing that, that came up for me that that time. And, you know, we spend other time together where we're actually interacting and doing things together. But, you know, this is just like even the presence in the room makes me feel seen. You know, Penny, that reminds me of something as my older son started adolescence. There's sort of a natural thing where your kids 
want to do their own thing more and more. And that's absolutely developmentally appropriate. But I missed my son. Mm -hmm. And because he's such an introvert, instead of going and hanging out with friends, he would go upstairs in his room and do his thing in his room. And so I felt very shut out. And I was trying to figure out, like, how do I communicate to him that I want to be around him without pressuring him to be around me, right? Like, I want it to be his own choice. Yeah. And so, what I started doing with him is I I would say, you know, like you were talking about, you know, it would be nice if somebody would just hang out in the kitchen with me while I cook. What I would do with my son is I'd say, hey, I'm just going to be sitting, you know, in the living room reading or on my computer or whatever. It'd be lovely if you wanted to join me here, you know, where I'm not going to be talking or anything, just hanging out. And sometimes he'd come and sometimes he wouldn't. But I'd always say, you know, just hanging out in the living room. And, I, you know, I didn't expect that he would come or not. I just let him know that I was there and open. Mm-hmm. And more and more, he does come down. He really likes hanging out with us. And we don't, you know, during those times, we don't ask him to talk to us. We just mostly were on our computers, you know, doing something probably not terribly productive and <laughs> sharing, you know, funny things we're seeing or whatever. Yeah. But just hanging out together like that is definitely great and doing it without demanding that they do it. That's the tricky part. Yeah, I mean, so often we need our kids buy-in. They need to want it. Mm -hmm. The more we push them to do something they don't want to do, (laughs) the more they're going to resist. Right. We need it to feel like their choice. Maybe it wasn't their idea, but it needs to feel like their choice. That gives them control, too, that that helps them to just feel better about doing anything, really. Mm-hmm. But leaving that door open, yeah, yeah. You know, I have this real struggle with having an audience, like in the car, you know, I have full access to a kid in the car right. when we're going somewhere. And I really want to take advantage of that, right? I really <laughs> want to have all these meaningful conversations. And I have such a hard time when they plug up their ears with their music and ignore me. And I I just have to like say, okay, it's not about me. It's what they need. It's not that they're choosing not to talk to me. They're choosing to listen to music while they ride in the car. Maybe, you know, it's because of anxiety about being in the car. Or maybe it's anxiety about where we're going. Or, you know, maybe it's just that that's what they need to regulate in that moment, right? right? But I think so many parents are like me. We think, oh, this is the time to have all the conversations. <laughs> and our kids are are hyper aware that that's what we want and find ways, right, to say, nope, not what I need right now. You know, actually, something I've learned to do is if I'm going somewhere with my kids, I ask them what they would like to listen to in the car. Mm-hmm. And if they want to listen to music, you know, we listen to music or I'll have them choose a podcast that they enjoy listening to. And I just kind of try to make it a rule that I won't talk about, you know, all the things, because you're right, it's so, so tempting. But getting them to choose it, then it's at least a shared experience we're having. Yeah. Yeah. So often Luke will say, I want to play a song for you, mom. And he connects his phone and we listen to that when it's just the two of us. Um, Oh, I love that. And I'm always open to it. You know, you and I have had these conversations before, and I'm sure I've mentioned it on the podcast probably several times. He, what is regulating for him music-wise is basically really fast heavy metal, (laughs) which makes me so dysregulated. I can't even find the words to describe it, but I'm still open to doing at least a song 
and listening to it in full without complaining about it and without telling him how it makes me feel because it's important. It's important to him. Yeah. And so, yeah, it kind of goes in that same category with getting motion sickness with Mario Kart or VR. Like, I can only (laughs) take so much before I really, like, feel like... I've got to stop the car and run away, you know, but I'm going to absolutely be open to a certain amount of it that I can be. And that's really, really important. There's so many times we can engage and in small ways, they don't have to be big ways. They don't have to be long term. You don't have to go spend the whole day with your kids somewhere at some, you know, expensive amusement park or anything like that. We're just talking about like being together. I love that. Just being together. Exactly. You know, the other thing I did want to mention, Penny, and we talked about it a little bit before we came on here, we haven't even touched on not responding in a big way, right? So Mm -hmm. one of the relationship resets that I had to do with my kids is that I would get upset, they would get upset, and we just get into what I call the cycle of crazy, right? Where we're just Mm -hmm. ramping each other up. And one of the things I had to do was to learn That when that started, I was just going to take a deep breath and not respond in a big way, like stay calm, which, you know, over the long haul has definitely been a really, really helpful strategy. But when I first did it, my kids were used to doing something and then having me get upset Mm -hmm. and then they'd get upset. And that's how they were used to interacting with me. Right. And so when I stopped interacting with them like that. So they would say something provocative and I would not respond in a also provocative way. Then they would ramp up their behavior. So it actually got worse Mm. before it got better. So they had to learn a new way of interacting with me and they didn't know what to do with it. Right? Yeah. And so there's a term for that. It's called an extinction burst where you'll see an increase in dysregulated behavior. And it's because they don't know how to interact any other way. And so they have to learn a new way of interacting with you. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes parents will say, well, this isn't really helping. Just remember, like, you're you're changing everything for them. And they are trying to figure out, like, how they're supposed to interact with you now. It's not going to be something that just a switch flips and it works. It takes time. Yeah, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It takes a lot of time and practice and sticking to it. And I've been guilty of this myself, but I see so often that if something didn't work in the time we expected, we just give it up. We're like, well, it doesn't work. Right. And we really have to be careful about doing that because especially with neurodivergent kids, it takes time. Change takes time and it can take longer than we expect. It definitely takes longer than we want and wish it to be. And we just have to keep reminding ourselves that it's for the long haul and eventually you will see the rewards. Yeah. And, you know, the other piece of it, too, is that it might not work now at this point in your child's development, but it might work later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a good place to wrap up, I think. It's just to remember that you need to keep at it. We've given a lot of good strategies and insights here And you can get links to some of the resources that we have named in this episode at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 213 for episode 213. 
And there you can learn more about the behavior revolution and get the links to those resources that have been mentioned, like the book on declarative language, for instance, will be there as well. And of course, I'm always grateful to have Sarah here and sharing her insights and wisdom. And um, we'll be back in another month-ish to bring you another episode on behavior. And with that, I'll see everybody next time. Take good care. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining me on the Beautifully Complex podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses and parent coaching at parentingadhdandautism.com and at thebehaviorrevolution.com.